0: Okay. So, uh, any problems or bad things we have to worry about? Uh, are there any empty seats so the people sitting on the floor can have seats? Uh, right back... One back there in the corner, if you want it. And are, are the auditors... are there any people taking the course who are on the floor? Instead of... some auditors give the people who are on the floor your seats, please. They need to write notes. Uh, you're happy on the floor, okay. Uh, but she's not happy on the floor. I think she needs to see. Okay. Now, that's pretty good. Let's let's start there. No problems. Okay. There there are problems from last time. All right. Content problems. After conferring with and exchanging email with uh, Jennifer and Rick and talking to Alva this morning, I see that I got things. Sort of off course at the end of the lecture last time when I was talking about attention. So I always thought it's a good idea to repent at least 10% of your previous lecture. But uh, so we get an opportunity to do that because I do want to straighten out what I got wrong. Then once I get it straight, once I straighten out what I've got wrong, I want to talk about what his story about attention is, and then that leads to the issue. Of realism and idealism which I've been told by Jennifer I can't hide from I have to discuss so I will discuss it and that leads finally to a very puzzling passage that I don't understand if we make it there we can all try to figure out what what I think it's probably important I mean, we ought to figure out what it means in any case I expect to get up to the cha- the phenomenal field part which luckily we have assigned for the whole week so I will I will do it Next time, if I don't get there this time, all that should be clear. Okay, so let's start with a straightforward quote, which I think I read, but which I now think I misinterpreted somewhat. Uh, so, which is on page 31, which that means in the old version, in the second full paragraph, uh, within you know, about 10 lines down, on 31. In order to relate it to the life of consciousness, well, it what's it? Uh, attention, I guess. Yes, yes. To the life of consciousness, one would have to show how a perception awakens attention, and then how attention develops and enriches it. You could use that as an epigraph for the whole attention chapter and what I want to try to talk about today. It's got two important components. The what, that it's perception which awakens intention. Intention isn't the prime, isn't first. Intention is a response. That's something I want to say a lot about, which I didn't say anything about last time. And it's a response which develops and enriches attention. That I said a lot about last time at the end. And everything I said about it was, if not exactly wrong, it was just premature and sort of off the track that he was on. So the basic idea, before I get into the details, is that that normal attention, which he calls secondary attention because he wants to talk about a more basic kind of attention, but normal attention is drawn to something which attracts us because we're interested or because it's just a bright thing or whatever, and uh, uh, it could be because we're looking for something could be because it just grabs us we are drawn to something and when we do it becomes it was in the background but then it becomes figure and uh, what was figure before gets changed into background that's just that's good common sense story now and he's going to elaborate it and he's not going to take it back he's perfectly happy with that kind of everyday uh, attention he thinks it's exactly what we normally do he just thinks that there's an even deeper kind of attention that has the same structure that he wants to call attention to but before we do I went off now and said a whole bunch of things which weren't quite right Uh, I wanted I said analytic attention in our everyday experience has a positive job of opening up the conceptual world of substances and properties. Well, that's just wrong in every dimension. I mean, we're not talking about analytic attention at this point. We're talking about everyday attention uh, that that turns backgrounds into figures and figures into backgrounds. Remember, analytic attention is what breaks up gestalts into elements. Analytic attention is what uh, the empiricist, sorry, without realizing it uses, and what the intellectualist makes a big fuss about, because that's being awake, being clear-headed, is to have the kind of attention, the analytic kind of attention, that breaks up the gestalt, which is a sort of a confusion from the intellectual's point of view, and shows you, remember, the sensory core, the elements. I shouldn't have brought analytic attention in at all. But also, we're not talking about how to get to the conceptual world of substances and properties yet. He does need some time to explain how we get an experience of determinate objects substances with properties, and he, but that's not what he's doing here. Uh, then I said something about motivation, which is right, but I haven't, we aren't ready to talk about motivation yet. Um, and I said that it, the, the true theory of attention doesn't think of attention as neutral, and that's right. Uh, it doesn't think of attention as having the job of breaking up gestalt, that's for sure. But then I said, the true role of attention is to focus on the figure in such a way as to give us a determinate, stable world. That's right, but that's something for later. That's not what this chapter is about. Um, But then I said rightly, and we'll get back to that, very important, that we retroactively cover up the indeterminacy that that our attention makes determinate. But I didn't explain it right or at all okay so much for that that I now scratch that in your notes and let's try again so now we're on to something new or at least sort of new called I think could be called primary and secondary attention those are not big technical terms for him he just uses the words in passing but I told you already about everyday or secondary attention now I'm going to tell you about primary attention uh, and now this is going to be a critique of both the empiricists and the intellectualists who can't understand attention in the, the basic way that it functions in giving us a world of objects at all that's that's primary attention so at the top of 33 in hours and lost in some huge paragraph in the other, so huge that I better go from the end. The, the par- uh, about 20 lines above the paragraph that begins against this conception. But for all of us, the top of 33. <coughs> Empiricism cannot see what we need to know. To, oh, sorry. This is his nice way of framing it. He's going to tell us that I know, and he tells it over and over. Remember, I said he's always arguing with this dialectic. Empiricism can't see it intellectualism can't see it. There's a third thing that everybody's missed in the whole history of philosophy that Gestalt has sort of seeing and he sees finally right all of which is true I think. Uh, and But so here we go empiricism cannot see that we need to know what we're looking for otherwise we would not be looking for it. That means empiricism thinks we've just got these clear impressions and that's that. And He's trying to set up the idea that there's something leading us to make our experience more and more determinate, That there's something indeterminate calling on us to make it determinate. He thinks that's the only way you can understand this puzzle that goes back to the amino how in the world you could be trying to find something well only if it's somehow there in some indeterminate way and calling you to make it determinate. That's in the back of his mind And then you read again, but empiricism can't see that, um, because uh, empiricism doesn't see see that we need to know what we're looking for, otherwise we'd not be looking for it. That is, it, it doesn't see that we're sort of seeking something. And intellectualism fails to see that we need to be ignorant of what we're looking for, or equally, again, we shouldn't be searching. So, that is, we're seeking something, we don't know clearly and determinately what, that we know that there's, that we've got some sense that there's something there to find, and that we're being called to find it. They are an agreement that neither can grasp consciousness in the act of learning. That is really now making this indeterminate solicitation, this indeterminate uh, call determinate. That would be the kind of learning. They are an agreement that neither can grasp consciousness in the act of learning. And that neither attaches due importance to that circumscribed ignorance, that still empty but all already determined attention sorry, intention, which is attention itself. Uh, I don't like quite that phrase. I mean, I think that's very bad for him to say, "empty, but already determinate. That's just exactly not what he wants to say. He, it, unfortunately, the French says it. But uh, what he means is the still empty but already somewhat determined. I mean, it's got to have enough content to be calling you to get it, and enough content so that you can get it right or wrong, that it isn't determinate until you get the right body set to unlock it I don't know where that is in Merleau-Ponty I was looking for it but I think the phrase is very nice he <coughs> talks about how we have to get the right body set in order to unlock the what is calling us and when we do it becomes determinate as the experience of some object but until we do uh... we uh... wait I want to see how to put that uh, well, until we do you, can, you don't want to call it or the set determinant you, they get determinant together when you finally unlock the object then you are set to say it becomes a house well, say it becomes the tree that's his example the trees and the ship that's a kind of problem to unlock it's a kind of tension that needs to be resolved and then as you walk closer it falls into place and the, on the side of the object, you get a, a determinate objects, masks, and trees. And on the side of me, I get a clear determinate set that I can now go up and see trees and ships or get on ships or whatever I'm set to do. So I, all I would say is not already an empty but already determinate intention. You've got to say an empty but already determinable intention. Ah, that would be a good way to put it. I could go back and look at the French again. Maybe it said that and I missed it. Wouldn't that be nice? Because otherwise it's nonsense. Anybody? Yeah?
1: say more about empty of what?
0: Empty of what? Uh, well, empty of determinateness. That's just another way of, of, that's all he means there. It's not got, and my set has not got any specific determinable expectations yet. And the object, think of the trees and, and mass, which aren't trees and mass yet, but just this tension, like a storm on the horizon, waiting to break, as he puts it. Uh, that's empty in the sense that there, you can't say yet, mass and trees, but it's not completely empty because then we'd be back and you wouldn't uh, be looking for anything. He's got trying to find this middle thing, remember, which has got to be. Determinate enough to be get trying you to be trying to get a grip on it, but not determinate enough for you to get a grip on it. And on your side, you're making it determinate enough to get. You're trying to get a determinate grip on it, but you haven't yet. And that's this business of seeking. And um, you have to you have to have some sense that there's something there to get it to get a grip on. And you have to have some sense that you haven't got a grip on it. Okay, they always about the trees and the mass. That's what that, does that help? Good. Terrific. Uh, everything else okay? Then let's see where we are. Uh, so he's got that story to tell there, and he's got it almost right. Oh, I wanted to write on here with my pen and check the French again. It seems so long-handed. Write in the determinable. I'll see if I can make it come out of the French. Okay. Um, now there's a whole lot this is what I was discussing with Alva this morning you want to come in? more auditors, get up uh, please, I'll, I'll find you and throw you out of the course if you take <laughs> up for people who need to co- come in uh, I'm not, it's not a good idea for people to be out in the hall but uh, okay, here we go um, the, so the, the issue is so I don't just copy what's out there. That would be a prejudice of the world. Now, I, we're talking about when I get the right grip to unlock it. That's already says I'm not copying what's out there, and I'm not creating it either. That's the, So uh, now the first qualification, I mean, part of the trouble with this lecture, unfortunately, somebody take that seat, some poor person has given it up for you to be able to sit and take notes. Uh, so... And another, if anybody wants to sit and take notes. Nobody? People taking the
2: course?
0: Auditors are giving up seats for people who can, who can come and take notes on what's going on. Um, so, okay, the next, let me, before you say anything, that not only do I have to try to fix that statement determinant, but I have to try to fix all through what's coming next, the use of the word creation because I think the basic point is you're not creating at least you're not creating ex nihilo anything you're and he has another word which is much the right word articulating that is you are making determinate. you are make bringing into focus when you bring something into focus and make it determinant you don't create it that is just not the sensible way of talking but he's very sloppily using articulating creating and another word constituting, mm-hmm. as if somehow we knew what they meant or he knew what they meant, or they meant the same thing sometimes, and sometimes they don't mean the same thing. It's always like, why didn't he write another draft and give it to some people to correct? But anyway, I'll correct it. He should have given it to me. <laughs> yeah. I think creating What? What? I mean, can't
3: we say that we're
0: partly creating the
3: perception because like, we're like, going to speech or something or he right. an example that like, things to us yes,
0: yes, well, that's what I want to call articulating, I mean, the only reason I don't want to call it creating is it sounds like, like a blank canvas, there's nothing there and then you put something on it, and the whole point is there's something there this problem, this solicitation this thing like a storm on the horizon this indeterminate tension that's trying you're trying to get a grip on and unlock so it's like when you unlock something, do you create anything? No, you, you manage to bring out something that's there, I think. I mean, Alvin and I discussed it, and, that, and I'm really bouncing off that discussion, yeah.
3: Just, just a minor note, um, could you comment a little bit more on the use of the term a, t- a constitution? Because I'm going to get to it,
0: <laughs> okay. yeah, yeah, okay, when it comes around pretty soon. Okay, but I can say something right now that constitution could mean what it means in Husserl in which case it's pretty much creation ex nihilo. of because in Husserl he has the form and matter picture there's pure Hule which is just Greek for matter and then there's conceptual form which consciousness imposes on it and it's pure intellectualist position he considers it a certain point in here without naming it but it's not like that the the Hule doesn't have enough solicitations just too indeterminate. Uh and uh so and that kind of constitution is not the kind he wants. And since is sort of the one who put the word constitution into the ball game, I think he shouldn't use it. Uh he and when he does talk about constitution he usually talks about these kind of this intellectualist kind of is there a Kantian
2: understanding of constitution? Yeah it would be
0: it would be very much like Husserl's um there are only in Kant Uh, I don't know, does does Kant use the word constitution? Anybody know? Now that I think of it, I'm not sure he does, because the forms of sensibility, space and time, don't constitute anything, they just form it, and then then we put the categories on it. If anything is constitution in Kant, it's putting the categories on the manifold of sensibility, which has already got a sort of structure. I think we shouldn't go into Kant. Okay. Uh, but if anybody <laughs> knows whether he uses the word constitution, come and tell me or send me an email. I haven't got time to reread the critique of pure reason to <laughs> find out. My colleagues who know are all off in Germany right now. Uh, okay. Yeah.
1: He says that attention is an empty but already determined intention. Yeah, that's what
0: he says. Yeah. I don't like it. But why, why do you read it back to me? Well,
1: by intention doesn't mean like willful engagement. Ah, or no, like directedness?
0: no. He means directedness exactly, and it isn't even a propositional, representational kind of directedness. It's just directed toward uh, lowering the confusion, resolving the tension. It doesn't know what it's directed for, in the sense it has no goal, unless that's a goal. That's a very peculiar kind of goal. It doesn't have a representation of what would count as something specific that would count as success. It has a kind of, uh, it is built into it that it <coughs> success will be resolving the tension and getting something determined. And in that sense it's intentional, because it has, I was talking with John Searle for an hour yesterday, so I'm sort of falling into Surlean talk, which is fine, if it for here, that's why it's intentional, because it can succeed or fail. You could just throw yourself into the confusion and never get out again. I mean it would never take shape. Maybe then so okay. So there is there is a kind of intentionality involved. And but it's not representational, propositional, intentionality. That, okay. So bunch for that. You see is that okay? <coughs> You're still worried?
1: Can you paraphrase it?
0: I just okay. Uh, there is the empty but already determinable tendency. How's that? Directedness.
2: Oh, directedness. Yeah, why
0: not directedness? So there is the empty. Let's do what do we do with empty? The blank, does that help any? The uh, well no, it doesn't help any. The, I see, the it has to be there, the indeterminate, but already determinable. Yeah, let's rewrite it all together. So, because I think he's right, to sort of obsess about what that sentence means. So the empty there means indeterminate. There's no particular properties it has, but already determinable directedness. If we tried to rewrite every sentence like this, we'd never get past the beginning of the book. But it helps to rewrite one now and then, a pretty important one. Yeah.
3: But just picking up on what yeah. was saying. Um, you you understand these sections as, the, as leading to the development of the idea of, of
0: motive and that's right and that's right
3: directiveness in the sense of appetite.
0: No. Well, uh,
3: there is a sense where well, you talk about um, what's the term you keep using? Like,
0: Tendency solicitation
3: solicitation. Yeah. So it strikes me that that this passage does lend itself to a more appetitive reading of like the word intention of perhaps like want. I see. Or, well, Where the empty <coughs> but,
0: but determinable neediness, or something, or is right? Or want,
3: desire, desire. desire. or intention.
0: Yeah, oh, those are all intentional notions, of course. Mm-hmm. You're right. You're right. I mean, I mean, when you look, when you, when we get done with it, we would, we could rewrite it again. It's the indeterminate but determinable. Uh, uh, I can only say neediness. We don't have a word like desireness, but, but that's the thing you're getting at. That there's some there's something that uh, we haven't got that we want. Or attraction. Attraction. Maybe, let's try that. Uh, indeterminate, but determinable attraction. Mm, maybe. I mean, I, I hear from attraction too much as if there was something determinate they're doing the attracting. And it's, I want to put it on our side. There is something that that we sense, because it's all in the context of looking attra- for
3: something. I attraction in the way in which you were attracted to the backside on the streets before you saw you it had it it. Yeah.
0: I think you build in things there that are, are nice but, but additional to the essential point uh, so I'll, I'm going to stick to uh, something something like neediness is all I can think of if you have to put it in there's, it, it, there there's because we have this it's like a question that needs to be solved that's it's in the context of that but it was something we're looking for how about seeking aha uh-huh. An indeterminate but determinable seeking. Will that do? Yeah. That's good. That's the kind of directiveness it is. Because you could have a directiveness where you just stare at something and don't seek it. But um, how
3: can it be intentional in John Searle's sense if it's indeterminate?
0: It can. That's why I was sort of trying to, s- to just say it was not representational and propositional. In that <coughs> aspect of Searle's sense, it is... Like, John was telling me yesterday that any Merleau-Ponty-like point can always be put in terms of success conditions in a very broad sense because they, then you're asking, well, what, what is it? Well, it's seeking uh, determination. And, but that isn't the normal kind of propositional representation because of this indeterminacy. Whereas in John's view, the, the paradigm kind of intentionality is you're trying to achieve some goal and you know what the goal is and you just haven't got it yet. Here you don't even know what the goal is, except in this very oh yeah. different way that it's the goal is to get it clear enough yes. so that you can deal with it.
2: The, the goal is to figure out what's there. So there's yes. the ship. You don't know what's there, but you're you're trying to get a maximum grip on it and the tension is is you're trying to is the actual change in consciousness that leads you to form a figure on a ground.
0: Well it's it's not the change in, it's what leads you to change to have this change of consciousness and Get a figure on the ground. I don't think we're disagreeing. Either.
2: But instead, the, so could you phrase it as as having the conditions of satisfaction of, of uh, just trying to figure out what's there.
1: Well, then you've got a there is an X implicit in right. all these statements.
2: Right. And exactly. And that's why. That's why it's an
1: indeterminate trajectory, just mm-hmm. moving outwards. You can get past the circle. Point okay. that it's something about
3: other than itself. So you don't have to get it
0: there as an axe. Yeah, but then you do have to get a kind of seeking in. It. It's put yeah, in the terms of searching. And, and, and then, then it's all right. I mean, I don't mind if it's like Searle, yeah, I mean, as right. long as it's, it's not sort of a, d- a determinate right. kind of representation of a goal which you already know, where the emphasis is on the activity of achieving it. Right. Here there is no goal yet. Right. And the activity is the emphasis is on finding out what's there. Right. As, as uh, well, so. I, I
2: would consider that to be the goal. So well, the yeah, but it's
0: a different, different sort of goal. That's all. A higher I mean, level. Yeah, or some different level, anyway. And, and that's right. So it's so it's a kind of intentionality, and, and it has conditions of uh, success and failure. I like to call it conditions of improvement because you can get more and more determinate, whereas generally, the way Cyril thinks of it, you either get what you, you, you get satisfaction when you achieve the goal. Uh, here what you do is you're pulled to get a better and better grip on it. But that's still, you can succeed or fail. Yeah. So we're not making any, we're not, I'm not, I, I'm not disagreeing. Uh, if I were disagreeing, let me think of it, I think this is too complicated to explain, but I'm, I'll try to tell you how I would disagree with Cyril if I could do it. Uh, Now, all I can say is this sort of unhelpful un- un- and uninteresting thing that the background functions in a different way in the way Merleau Ponty thinks about it and Sewell thinks about it. But <coughs> someday I may be able to say this when we've got more stuff on the table <coughs> and I've thought about it more. Yeah. It
1: kind of reminds me of relation that's still
0: didn't you, you say that last time too? Or am I having hallucinations? Somebody said that. Now I keep thinking that doesn't seem to me the right way to think about it. I don't want to think about it that way. No intentionality with an S. In fact, no, no more intentionality with a T. Let me let me get back to this. I mean, if you, by the way, want to clear with your TA thinking about this, and all oh, I think it's a very illuminating. Uh, Enterprise, yeah. but you'd have to convince your TA that you already knew Searle and that your job was thinking about this, and, we, and you'd have to take sort of the Searle views for granted while explaining these. Yeah. No, there is a connection
1: because, like, he's, he's calling attention to a particular kind of intention, and we're going to talk about intentionality of the T, right? And, but somehow the intention that is attention is both determinate and indeterminate. So naturally, you wonder, well, how is it determined and how is it indeterminate? Well, what's minimally necessary for an intention of the a T to be determined is a direction. Because that's what intentionality is. What's indeterminate about the intention is what it's directed towards. So it sounds like it's calling attention a kind of directiveness without an end. And that's a little bit like an intentional report. Because for certain, the intentional report cuts out a hole that can be filled in. So, and, and so, in a way, I'm not drawing an equivalence between them, okay. but just
0: kind of an, an analogy. Okay, well, okay, but don't say more. I, just because what's the, what's important to Merleau me right now is mm-hmm. the sense that there is this seeking to fill it in and that it's drawing you to fill it in. It's already somehow, uh, it's already there pulling you. That's like the Storm on the Horizon story. I don't know whether that's with an S. I don't. It's more than a hole. It's, it's, it's sui generis. It's unlikely that it's going to look like anything in Searle. I and mean, I don't want to talk about it more, except in office hours, because we're talking at a level and with jargon that is not going to be helpful for lots and lots of these people. Okay, now uh, I'm ready to go back to this, or I'm never going to get done. Okay, so it's misleading to bring in creation, I think. It's not the way you should talk. He says in the middle of 34, and Rick alerted me to this to my horror, that there is literally a question of creation. I don't think there's a, there's certainly not a question of literal creation. We'd have to go back and see if we could save that one from the French, too. I mean, but I don't think any. there's any question of creation at all, uh, however you throw the literally or the creation. So I just
2: well,
0: cross that one out. What about
2: the object of creation?
0: There is no object well,
2: of creation. Well, th- that's why there's, there's this shrewd thing higher up in the page He talks about... The first operation of attention is then to create for itself a field. So that's kind of different from creating an object. I mean, God would maybe create an object. Yeah, I agree
0: so with you. And maybe
2: creation is like the organizational aspect of things you were talking about last time. Well, I'm not sure.
0: What I that. don't know what it means. But it, it's he it, it comes in every once in a while, not just in this context of this particular sort of brain injured person that he's talking about, as I recall. Yeah, but but, but let's. I mean, I don't, and never mind how it happens. I mean, every time you see it, I think it can be cashed out as articulation, and, and so why not? Okay, we, let's do it. Good, okay, we'll do it. Uh, so my body response. Well, sir,
3: yeah. the, the context? Is the, is the child acquiring colors?
0: Well, not here yet, is it? No, that's the next time it's on. At the that's, bottom of the page. No,
3: it's a continuation of that thought. No, there's this person no, who can't
0: can be, uh, locate on their body. No, he
3: says. He says there's literally a question of creation. For example... Okay, <laughs> now he's doing this.
0: Okay, okay, now he's to the child. And the and child... That's not articulation. Okay, the world, and he says about the colors for the child's world that they were <coughs> indeterminate, which is interesting. I mean, he doesn't say the child's world has no color. He's trying to do his thing again. That indeterminate on our thing is five lines from the bottom. It's, uh, the, a world in which colors were indeterminate. Uh, that is, again, a child's world has a kind of pull to color, that it can't get color yet. Um, it's, and eventually, and it gets pulled into sort of distinguishing red, uh, warm and cold, and then it gets maybe three or four colors, and finally, it, it, this indeterminacy uh, gets completely indeterminate, and the child gets the colors. But it didn't create the colors. It didn't even create, you know, or the possibility of color, even. I mean, that's all given. What's what he needs what the child needs in my jargon and which is Merlofontice but I can't find it, just unlock the color. It's the color for the child is like the rabbit in the woods in one of those puzzles. Yeah. I mean something's in there, something's trying to get out and become clear. I don't know yet, and then one day, aha, I see the rabbit in the trees. Uh, Jennifer and then Rick, yeah.
1: What about just resolution of tension? I mean, there you don't really have it.
0: With the rabbit in the trees.
1: Just all of this, you know, making up the colors or just a a given tension. But that's not intentional in any kind of sense. Just uh, it's like a Searle's anxiety that's undirected, but there is some sort of
3: resolution. You yeah, there's, there's
0: always, and I'll give you lots of quotes as I get along. Everybody's jumping ahead, but that's all right. There's the, that's, this has got to do with motivation. There's mm-hmm. always motivation, and motivation is always a pull to get something that you haven't got, but which, which, which you already sense is there and which you need, yes. and that's it. Uh, that's why I talk that way.
3: Rip.
2: So, in this question of creation, so he says that the colors were indeterminate. And so what's what's kind of contradictory about that is if the colors were for for the developmental child, they're already there and created, so to speak, in this indeterminate way. And then there is this
0: other act of creation, which I guess has been making it. Well, he's got to—he's got to be careful. He shouldn't say—he shouldn't say that the colors were there indeterminate. What he should say is something's there indeterminate. I know he does. But what he's thinking is something is there. Something there is indeterminate, which when it gets to be determinate will be colors. That would be the—that would be be the right thing to say. Well, we—we have to write this over bit by bit. Could somebody close the door? There's a kind of cold wind across here. normally I would like but somehow right now I don't <laughs> if it gets too hot we can close it again
2: And just to emphasize I mean the reason why we care about this is that you know the real question is Is be an idealist
0: well yeah we're getting there we, I hope we get there by the end today of course and the answer is complicated <laughs> maybe well, con- well, lots of distinctions, which we'll get to. Uh, uh, let's see. So, I don't want to bring in creation. My body responds to the solicita- solicitations in the ground and brings out a new figure from out of the ground. That's how he says it the net- right after where we are, uh, the colors. Next paragraph. Now, attention, and this is uh, ha- has to be conceived on the model of these primary acts. It's in secondary attention. That's everyday attention. Which would be limited to recalling knowledge already gained would once more identify it with acquisition. So all he's saying is that you have to do this primary thing of getting the object determined in the first place before you can then switch back and forth between the object and the field. And sometimes you pay attention to the object and sometimes you don't. That's secondary attention. He wants to go. He wants to use the same structure. Remember, I said that he wants to go to something that has makes that ordinary attention possible and now to pay attention is not merely further to elucidate a pre-existing data that's what we normally do we pay attention to the ret- lectern then we're just paying attention to some pre-existing thing which was in the background and now is in the figure we do that but that's not what he's interested in here it's to bring about a new articulation by taking them as figures okay that's think of the mass in the ship and the trees They are preformed only as horizons. They constitute in reality new regions in the total world. That is, the the colors are one example for that. Uh, I wonder if the trees and the boats, I I should say, is really secondary attention. Because you already know what trees are. You already know what boats are. That's secondary attention. What he's interested in is learning about some new something or other for the first time. That's primary attention. And, that, and notice they have the same sort of structure. The difference is you already know what trees are and masts are, and, and uh, you're trying to get that to sort <coughs> itself out. It's not like the child already knowing what colors are and in a situation in which something is blurry, and then in, it's so dark, and then finally they manage to see the color. It's not, they don't know what colors are yet. And that's the primary story. Uh, so, let's see, but the, the, the important commonalities, the structure, is that you articulate something into a figure which was on the horizon before. Uh, and that means on the horizon in the sense that in the background, uh, that's synonymous. And in the background means there was already a sense that something was needing to be made determinate. There was already you were seeking to get a better grip. There was a sense that there was something there that you could get a better grip on. That's all in it, I think. Okay? Yep. So my body responds and so forth, and I said in my notes the shifts, but now I think that's secondary remember where the ships are, they're on page 20, I'm not going to go back. Well, I keep using the language of page 20, so let's look at it, because though it's secondary, it's the same structure. So let me go there, to just if I walk along the shore way back, I just want to stick to the middle of the page. The unity of the object is based on the foreshadowing, this is what's the same, <coughs> a similar structure, the foreshadowing of an imminent order which is about to spring upon us, are applied to questions merely latent <coughs> in the landscape, it solves a problem set only in the form of a vague feeling of uneasiness that's that's the general that's the general way of talking about attention which is the same whether it's secondary or primary it's like the thing I began with on page 31 perception awakens attention and develops and enriches it Uh, and attention is about how that happens now, so but now we're looking at the primary kind, which is the kind that is something like creation, but better called articulation. Um, it sounds, I just said, it's misleading to call it a ten, a creation. It should be called articulation. See the bottom of page. Or see, see page 45. Notice, I just ran over it too fast. To pay attention is not merely to elucidate pre-existing data; it's to bring about a new articulation. I didn't make up that word; because of the word he really needs. To articulate means to focus, to make clearer, to see the joints of, to see how it all hangs together. That's what he he's talking about. Um, and he also says constitution lower down, and that's where I and that's that's Husserl's word. But let's skip a little. The miracle of consciousness consists in its bringing to light through attention phenomena which re the unity of the object in a new dimension at the very moment they destroy it. That's okay. I, I mean, I think that's not always the way it is, and I don't think we should stop to think of examples. Thus, attention is neither an association of images, nor the return of itself to thought already in control of its objects, but the active constitution of a new object. Well, if constitution means the same as articulation, Yes that if it means like in Husserl imposing a form on an unstructured matter no and which makes explicit and articulate that's good making explicit you know is another version of articulation except making explicit is also not a good idea but we could cross that word out while we're editing it the reason it's not a good idea is when you talk about explicit you usually think of it as already implicit now there is a sense of implicit where it's in the indeterminate that there's only one right way to making it determinate, and in that sort of way, the determinant's already implicit, but it's a misleading because usually implicit means it's just there already, and you can bring it out uh, it's i mean if I say such an I't know so I need an example of normal implicit. Uh, There's a big, fat book by Robert Brandon called Making It Explicit, and it goes on and on and on about how all the structures of uh, what Merleau-Ponty would call intellectualist stuff is in there all along, and we can bring it out, uh, and it's a good job of philosophy to bring it out. It's really, I know how to, I know. That was just blathering, but here's the right thing to say. The sensory core people believe that the sensory core is implicit. And when you break up the perceptual field, you make explicit what was in there all along, namely the elements, which were implicit. That's bad. That, that's one connotation of implicit, and we don't want it. Because it isn't as if the elements are in there all along. It's just indeterminate uh, solicitation or tendency or, or what is this word? What was, it was nice about the, the masks. Say. Vague uneasiness, yeah, the vague uneasiness, right? A uh, foreshadowing, yeah, good. So now, so now I'm going to get rid of, we're uh, going to get rid of uh, the implicit. As soon as I find my pen. Oh, thank you. So unlucky. Okay. He's gone, and we can't edit his book. Uh, where's the implicit? Oh yeah, here it is. Okay, the uh, five lines in the bottom of thirty-five. But the active constitution of a new object, which makes explicit, no, which makes articulate what was until then presented as no more than an indeterminate horizon. Indeterminate horizon, equal ground. That's just, he can use them interchangeably. Um, so articulation isn't copying, it isn't creating. Now we get to the next important move, which has sort of been guiding my discussion. He really wants to introduce the idea of motivation. And a motivation isn't a cause and it isn't a reason causes and reasons come from the world of determinateness. Uh, uh that is sensations can, can uh, input from the world can cause sensations uh, and uh, reasons can cause me to act in a certain way they are all they, they are <coughs> determinate but what he's talking about, which is, again, these vague uneasiness, the vague solicitation, that's what he wants to call motivation. and That's not determinate. Uh, let's see where that is. At the bottom of page. I'm right where I was. At the same time as it sets attention in motion, the object is at every moment recaptured and placed <coughs> once more in a state of dependence on it. It gives rise to the knowledge-bringing event, which is to transform it which by means of the still ambiguous meaning which is required that event to clarify. By the way, I think if you say transform, you don't mean the same as create. I mean, that's another way to say creation's a bad word if what you're talking about is transformation. Articulation is a transformation. It is therefore the motive and not the cause of the event. Okay, There he slips in the word motive and now we have to figure out what that is. Well, it's it's a crucial notion in Merleau-Ponty, because it's, we are constantly taking what is indeterminate in our experience and making it determinate and we're doing that because we are called to do it that's solicited talk and so forth and motive is, is my response to this kind of indeterminacy calling me to get a body set that will make it determinate. To a uh, motive is this pull to being to unlocking it, and he use it in all sorts of ways. I mean, from where the binocular vision motivates a sense of uh, distance, because if I saw it, if there was something wrong so that I saw two images in the scene, which were not quite superimposed, I, I would try to put them together. But in, for his way of thinking, it's the body schema outside of consciousness, which, because of their, these two images don't quite fit, is pulled to get these images together and to produce an experience of distance, that's the way he's going to use the term motive. Motive, it takes the place for him of all kinds of intellectualist, unconscious thinking, processing these two images are this far apart the object would have to be that far away if, if, if for my two eyes the image was that far apart and therefore I now see the object is a certain distance that's the view he doesn't want he just wants to say the visual field is unstable and then the object finds a certain distance and sits there and that is the motive has uh, done it uh, It's. It's a way of saying that what he calls the body schema, I'll come to that in a minute, has in it already ways to respond to sort of unbalances, I guess, in the, in the, in the perceptual field and get a stable order. to that. Another way he puts it at some point about distances is that there's this sort of unstableness about some tree and then the tree retreats into a certain uh, part of the landscape which is a certain which is a certain distance from me and settles down that's because there was a kind of motivation to get that tree where it would be stable and the visual system does it and it does it without consciously or unconsciously having a theory about it or doing any calculations it has its own kind of logic he says. okay, I'm going to read you things like that now. I just jumped ahead. Um, so the bo- where I, where am I just a second uh, done by the body schema have I got ready for that? Uh, yeah on, uh, on 55 in, in, in ours. The body schema is introduced in the middle of a long 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 paragraph. I end this paragraph. Uh, the only clue I can give you other guys is, it's a play, if you see a footnote structure of comportement structure de comportement 178 then you're in the vicinity yeah but John he just says in passing it's a it's got to do with the body schema and I'm not going to but he's talking about a motive there in italics earlier but I remember when I set this out that well maybe I can read it to you now let's see what's he talking about uh, Who's
3: in the next chapter
0: now? We're in attention and judgment, weren't we before? Same chapter. it's all
3: Same
0: so you're chapter.
2: Three or four pages from the end of this chapter.
0: He's talking in fact about how you you see distance here, isn't he? Uh, not sure. I am not sure. So when you when when the the movements of the body He's talking. About? He's talking
2: about that example oh, where, you, where your eye
0: moves. Oh yeah, down. right. That's why I didn't want to talk about it because it's such a weird case. But but he introduces the notion of motive in italics and he mentions the body schema. I want to talk about it where we, it's not such a abnormal case. So I'm going to go on. Um, so articulation is a body. It requires a body response, and uh, he spells it out on 56. So let's read from the middle of 56. Another huge paragraph. It's
2: actually the same
0: paragraph. Ah, it's the same paragraph. <laughs> okay. It's four pages, four okay. <laughs> <laughs> Paragraphs are cheap. I mean, you could have a lot of them. Anyway, I don't know. So the objects filling up the field do not act on the apparent distance in the relation of cause to effect. Ah, yeah. This is the point I was just I was making. This one. When I said distance has to do with motivation for them. When the screen is removed, we see remoteness born of the intervening objects. This is the silent language whereby perception communicates with us. Interposed objects in the natural context mean a greater distance. Mean in quotes. I mean, it doesn't got to do with meaning. It's got to do with the fact that they're going to only become stable when you get the put far enough away. It's not, however, a question of connection Recognized by objective logic, see, that's the intellectual. <coughs> he thinks it's unconscious, normal logic. The, lo- the logic of constituted truth, that's not it. For there is no reason why a people should appear to me to be smaller and further away when I am better able to see in detail the slopes and fields between me and it. That he's, he's giving sort of gestaltist answer to a intellectualist account of how we come to see the tree a certain distance. There is no reason, but there is a motive. It's precisely Gestalt psychology which has brought home to us the tensions, see I didn't make this up, that run like lines of force across the visual field and the system, own body, world, and which breathe into it a secret magic life. Very weird talk of Merleau Fonti. But the secret magic life is just the way your perceptual system will sort things out into certain distances, will sort things out to have just uh, like trees and masks, and and all of this in a secret because it's in your body and you're not conscious of it. Magic because it isn't doing logical calculations and it isn't doing uh, memories of previous impressions that are somehow associated with trees looking like that, it's doing some third thing. It's the visual system doing what Merleau-Ponty thinks visual systems do. Uh, Okay. And then he says, I'm not sure I'm ready for it though, let me just see, I'm trying to put this in my order. I'm going to read my own stuff for a minute. Attention is my openness to the solicitations in the background, which my body responds to by articulating a new figure out of the background. My response is receptive to the solicitations already there. I, that's not news. Uh, okay, I'm ready for 56, where he goes on to criticize the Gestaltists, having just taken over their notion of motivation, skipping down a bit. But when Gestalt psychology. Oh, sorry. What Gestalt psychology lacks for the adequate expression of these perceptual relationships is a set of new categories. Now, that's interesting. And a strange thing to say and that I think this is going to be this is the transition to idealism Uh, but I want to see where I am now yeah okay now what do they do they lack new categories think of this how many interesting gestalt categories has Merleau-Ponty used which are uniquely gestalt not intellectualist not uh, empiricist and he's asking for new categories I'm going to list them he's talked about equilibrium tension good form maximum coherence field (coughs) norm motive, even motive is one of theirs indeterminacy and solicitations how many more categories would you want those are all new categories and he's taking them over it really, I thought this was just plain craziness that I now think it's not craziness what he really means is they aren't going to talk about this in the proper idealist language that, that which a weird way to say that new cat the new category that they lack is going to be for next time the phenomenal field the new the next chapter uh, they've got fields all right and they've got phenomena all right but there's a certain way of hearing phenomenal field in a quasi idealistic way that they haven't got. Because he thinks there's something wrong with the Gestalt people because they're naturalists, because they believe that there's a physical world, and that the brain is functioning according to the laws of physics, and that they ought to be able to find fields in the brain to correspond to the fields in perception. He thinks that's just wrong. I think that's absolutely right. I'm all for the gishtalatists, but that's, we don't have to take sides here. The important thing is, for him anyway, they and this I think is utterly unfair. He says on the next page, about two-thirds down, Gestalt psychology, which like all psychology is imprisoned within the self-evident truths of science and the world, they do believe in, in science and the world, can choose only between reason and cause. Well, that's not fair. The gestaltists are the ones that introduced the notion of motion, which he just took over from them. What he means by that, it isn't just a slip-off, it's worse. What he means is they're looking for the physical causes behind the motivations. They want to find out how the visual system works as a physical object in the physical world. And I must say, more power to them and as I say every once in a while Walter Freeman has made progress in this respect and J.J. And, and <coughs> J. Gibson has made progress in this respect I mean it's true that at Merleau-Ponty's time the neuro people didn't have anything helpful to say and, in, and the Gestaltists when they looked for their fields in the brain which they actually did, didn't find any that corresponded to the fields they were hoping to find the ways in which the fields in the brain came to equilibrium the way the perceptions, say, of the trees and the boat came, the masks and the trees came to equilibrium, they were thinking, look, soap bubbles come to equilibrium by the least action, making them into a sphere. We ought to be able to find the least action principles going on in the brain. And they didn't. But, but they,
2: Yeah? I, I think there are two issues here that, mm-hmm. that we need to distinguish. Okay. One is the prejudice of the world, which yes. the Gestalt psychologists are making as well. I so think the, the they? belief, the be, yeah, oh yeah, the Gestalt. Everybody is pretty much, and so they also believe that there's this determinate world. I mean, it's a presupposition of naturalism that that what that the prejudice of the world amounts to presupposing from the get-go that there is this okay, objective I world of natural science okay,
0: I'm going to get to that. I see what you mean. Yeah, when I talk to the, about the lines in the miller liar illusion, which is how it came up in Jennifer's seminar. Yes, there is a there's a double objection to Gestaltism. You're giving the sort of idealist metaphysical one. Right now, we're just getting the fact that they shouldn't be naturalists. Later, we're going to find out, and and, and they shouldn't believe in physical causality. Later, we're going to find out they shouldn't even believe in the objective external world.
2: But but all I want to say is that's a distinct issue from the other issue, Mm -hmm. which is whether or not what's really out there, as Thoreau would say, is brute, meaningless stuff. And we're imposing the observer relative meaning onto the brute, meaningless stuff. So the Gestalt psychologists also believe in that. Do they? I think so, and that's where i He's going to disagree by saying that you know. I'm not. I'm not convinced
0: about that. You'll have to tell me that later. That's why you right
2: down that
0: page? Really, I don't know. Let's look. The,
2: the imminent meaning,
0: and I Wait. Well, where is the imminent? So right
2: after what you're reading. Now okay, as no, we've no, seen okay.
0: Let's make. Let me read that sentence. Now, as we have seen, the per- perception of our own body and the perception of external things provided an example of non-positive consciousness. That means. Not explicitly uh, directed toward a determinate object. That is, a consciousness not in possession of a fully determinate object. That's what he's interested in. That that of a logic lived through, that's motivation, which cannot account for itself. That of an imminent meaning, which is not clear to itself. That's the
2: second part.
0: Yeah, but that's fine. He's all for that. That uh, an imminent meaning is not clear to itself and becomes fully aware only through experiencing certain natural signs. Now, read the next sentence. These phenomena cannot be assimilated by objective thought, and that is why Gestalt psychology. Well, that's what I think is wrong. I mean, I don't. I think he's just cheating. The Gestalt psychologists have been describing in detail how imminent meaning becomes uh, explicit how the deter- indeterminate becomes determinate that's their that's their game and no I don't think so
2: you don't think so I mean it's, it's a question of what Gestalt psychologists are trying to do and what he means maybe he's misunderstanding the Gestalt no psychology. I
0: think he's not misunderstanding them they're trying to do two things at once which I think is okay and he thinks is illegitimate they're trying to give a motivation from indeterminate to determinate, from unbalanced form to form, story about our experience, and then trying to find a causal basis for that in the brain. And that naturalism, that belief in the physical world, is their problem. Okay, okay. I, I
2: agree with that the way you put it. But so yeah. then the question is, um, in the, for example, if we just take uh, water, is water drinkable? Mm-hmm. Is that an objective property of water or a subjective property? Is the drinkability of water in the water? Are we imposing the meaning on the water? I think What's the Gestaltists
0: would be happy with the Gibsonian talk of the years. Why shouldn't they say the water looks to us? Uh, in fact, we know they say, say that. They say the say water that, looks drinkable. Right.
2: But if they say that, then, then that's not the objective world in the sense that we is going to criticize.
0: That's right.
2: Because the world the world that <coughs> we get from the physics department Yeah. Tells us about H two O, but not about the drinkability right, of the
0: water. Right, But notice that it's just unfair to the Gestaltists to say that they aren't aware that the water looks drinkable and the woman looks lovable and this and this is what you was you quoted as Yes, that's Kafka. That's Kafka, the one of the big of the two. There are two big Gestalt people, Wertheimer and Kafka, that get quoted all the time in the footnotes are cited. So the Gestaltists were the first to make a big fuss about affordances, but they were still Cartesian. Well, let's go, we'll, we'll get there. I'm just, I mean, but, but it's unfair to say that they didn't have any notion of motives and they didn't have any notion of affordances. They only believed in the realism of causal thinking, which is at the bottom. That if, in, Unless he just hasn't been reading a word of it, which makes no sense. He must have. He means there that they expected to find objective, determinate, independent, physical, causal, stuff underlying what they described, and they can't do that, isn't that, are you disagreeing about that? I,
2: I agree with you as far as the truth of the matter goes, I think, but maybe we're disagreeing on what we're looking on. Keith
0: okay, well, I'm trying to help him out, as, yeah, al- as I usual. I think that's right? kind
2: of a problem, because, you know, maybe he really just does have a couple wacky views. That okay, well,
0: the, it, this would be beyond wacky, this would be, it's sort of schizophrenic, having just used all this Gestalt talk about motive, indeterminate, affording, soliciting, and so forth, to say that they don't have it, and that they need new categories so they can talk like he did, when he was just talking like they did. Uh, just, that would be too crazy for words. So I'm doing this. I'm, I can't believe even he's that crazy. Anyway, so here's what I think. He th- he knows all that about behavioral psychology, and he knows that they made this big mistake, from his point of view, of expecting to find causal basis, correl- causal correlatives in the brain for what they were talking about. And as I keep saying, they didn't. Uh, and uh, but I want to say just one last time that Walter Freeman does. The fields are now chaotic attractors. They didn't know about chaotic attractors in his day, uh, although he had this one amazing moment when he said what goes on in the brain should be described in terms of vortices. not." <laughs> I don't know where he got that, but he was he was looking in the right direction. But anyway, he, they didn't have it, and, and the merleau thinks that they shouldn't have it, and that he even had an idea about how the brain should be described as really alien to his project. Uh, I wonder if I should say anything about this for those of you who've got the structure of behavior and look at these interesting footnotes taking you to interesting parts of the structure of behavior there he's very (laughs) interested in how the brain does it and has proposals and objections and so forth that's because the structure of behavior is written so to speak from within a belief in the objective world and science and the brain as a functioning object it's prior to the move to idealism which he makes in the Phenomenology of Perception this isn't a mistake, I mean he knows that he first gives, he wants to give the best story that you can give on the level of the objective world and try to figure out how the brain does it because there there do at least seem to be brains seeming to do it and then having done that he wants to make the move we're making right now descending of course that whole idea of a completely determined objective world with its objective causes underlying our indeterminate behavior with its motivations is a big mistake and so he goes from the structure of behavior to rethink it philosophically ontologically and in a kind of idealism which is where we are But it's good to go back and see what goes on in structure because he has lots of interesting things to say about what's wrong with current brain science in his day, and lots of hints about why it might be better. Yeah?
3: I'm I'm puzzled. Most of the first part of today was spent trying to make sense of his talk about creation and constitution without attributing to him the belief that the subject actually creates or constitutes. But you're ending now by saying that he is, in fact, an idealist. So, if you accept that he's an idealist, why not? Uh, well, just that he those good, other things good question. In an
0: way. No problem. I have, but I, I have 15 minutes to do it. But that's right. <laughs> he's, and I think we have to, there's a very important distinction. I'll just say it right now, and then I've got to show it. You, if you don't make the distinction between world and universe, you can't understand anything that I've been saying and he's been saying up to now. And so, that's what I'm about to get there. So we got the unfair critique of the Staltists and we got their new categories and uh, what he thinks is, now his story is that what are the new categories that he wants, the news, what is the phenomenal field going to tell us, the phenomenal field chapter is going to tell us that the world, the perceptual world is not determinate ever, that is always, we're always moving to get more determinacy and more of a grip on objects but there's always more indeterminacy because whenever you get a figure there's always a background and that's the way the world the the objective perceptual World. Well, this world. You can't say
2: objective there because that, that.
0: Oh yes, you can because well, he's. We, I want to say he's an empirical realist like Kant.
2: But he has his own technical use of the word objective.
0: Oh, and he doesn't like objective.
2: Which is, which is the world in itself. Oh,
0: okay. Sorry then. In the, take the back world of science. Take all back objective things. then. I would like objective, but let's just call it the shared world that we all experience and agree on.
2: So he says perceived world for that. Okay, good. That's his technical term.
0: Very good. So he's got a view about the perceived world and how it's indeterminate and so forth. And he's got a view, and this is where we have to get now, about how it's. We, this is always covered up by, by experience. Only funny, I didn't write down, and now i got a problem, where he says that. Um, well, I'll find it in a minute. Um, uh, here we are, on, on page 58. Uh, so, it's, it's the idea is now, That when we respond to these solicitations, when the body schema responds to the motivations and makes the objects of our experience determinate, we can't help reading back into our experience the idea that that determinate object was there all along and it was determinate all along. That's the retroactive illusion. That's the crypto mechanism. That's what he wants to say to all of you who are sitting here and saying, but this is utter nonsense. The world is full of completely determinate objects. Look there, strike in and the world <laughs> and, and, and Jennifer's beautiful yellow Carmandia, Dia, on porn and Dia out there, they're all as determinate as you could get. And the answer is, no, they're not. You just managed to make them determinate and uh, by focusing your attention on them. And in, the, in, uh, in fact, there is, there is... A basic indeterminacy in experience. And this is what he's saying at the top of 58. To the degree, and this is in the last paragraph of the chapter, to the degree, to the degree that the motivated phenomena comes into being, an internal relation to the motivating phenomenon appears. The motivated phenomenon is the determinate object. The motivating phenomenon is the, the tension. Hence, instead of the one merely succeeding the other that is the tension comes and then the determinate object the motivated phenomenon the determinate object makes the motivating phenomenon explicit and comprehensible and seems to have pre-existed its own motive that's a complicated way of putting it that says it see it explains why there was a tension and why this was an answer by saying because that was there was a yellow orange Volkswagen there all along that's that is to and now, let me just skip a sentence and you'll see that this is what's going on. We place beforehand within perception a science constructed upon it and we lose sight of the original relationship of motivation in which distance springs into existence ahead of any science, Not from a judgment of the two images for these are not numerically distinct but from the phenomenon of the shift from, from the forces which reside in this rough outline which are trying to come to rest. I mean, how much more sort of anthropomorphizing of this tension it's they trying to come to rest which lead it to the most determinate form possible so we read that whole story back into the world as we read the results back into the world and think the world is the determinate objects and it's because they are already determinate that they solicit us to get the key to unlock them but they are not like that they are they are being determinate depends on us we have to make them determine It's it's like it's related to affordances I and mean, the being uh affording eating is not a feature of things in the in the, in the universe uh, and neither are these determinate objects uh, features of things in the universe they are I'm going to show you the quotes in a minute features of things in the world the world is this perceptual shared Experience of lots of determinate objects, but always falling in and out of determination, mm-hmm. covered up by this tendency to think that it's all determinate. Uh, let, uh, I see a hand up there. Can Go you ahead.
3: Oh, I'm getting there.
0: I'm getting there. We're still in the world story, the, but, but almost ready to get there. Let me see now. I just want to say, where is it now? Okay, we've we've explained it all. Oh, yeah, there's a crucial line. I keep saying something, or I thought I'd been saying it, about crypto mechanisms. To do that, you have to jump to the phenomenal field chapter, a paragraph that begins this phenomenal field, which is about five pages in, and it's way in a paragraph that begins this phenomenal field, about two-thirds of the way. Now, nothing is more difficult than to know precisely what we see. I quoted that once before. There is a natural intuition of a sort of cryptomechanism which we have to break in order to reach phenomenal being. Or again, a dialectic whereby perception hides itself from itself and although it is of the essence of consciousness to forget its own phenomena, although thus enabling, thus enabling things to be constituted. Now, constituted here means <coughs> Uh, articulated or to take shape in our experience it doesn't mean uh, mind imposing form on matter but things coming into clarity um, it it enables things to come into clarity, to become determinate this forgetfulness is not mere absence, it's the absence of something which consciousness could bring into its presence now that little clause says, well, we phenomenologists can break the crypto mechanism, otherwise he'd have nothing to write about He's, be, he's just saying, yes, of course, it's all covered up. Yes, of course, you think there's objects out there are all very determined, causing you to have these experiences. But if you read this book and you, kind of, you look at experiences like the trees and the, the mass and the trees, and you look at brain-injured people, and you look at uh, children, and all this will lead you to realize that there is this indeterminate perceptual world, and you will be able to break out of this. Although, whenever you leave the study, like Hume, when he left the, 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 his study to play billiards, then he couldn't anymore even remember what he was, the weird things he was saying. So I think merleau ponty when he eats dinner, probably thinks the dinner is completely determined. But if you're doing phenomenology, you can resist that, he thinks. Okay, now we get to idealism. Uh, so we're going to Criticize Gestalt Realism. Let's see what I think I've already done that, but I'm not sure. So I'm going to go back and look. Uh, well, not really. I think on 54. Have I read 54 yet? Oh,
2: I don't know, but he, he criticizes Gestalt Realism on the last footnote of the chapter.
0: Okay, but I, there's a reason why I want to do it back there. Uh, so let me go back to 54. And uh, now I don't know where I am and for the other guys, unless I've cited it already. It's it's after that long footnote. However, he says, however, the, the psychologists, which always to be Gestalt psychologists, who practice the description of the phenomenon are not normally aware of the philosophical implications of their method. No, I haven't read that yet. This is the transition to idealism. They do not see that the return to perceptual experience, insofar as it is a consequential and radical reform, it's consequential, is that English? I really think it's in English, it's consistent. In far as it's a consistent and radical reform, puts out of court all forms of realism. That is to say, all philosophies which leave consciousness and take as given one of its results. That's enough. So the idea is once you understand how the perceptual world works, then you understand that there isn't any completely determinate external world and you can't be a realist let me find you more quotes though I'm going to read you now so he's turning Gestalt he's turning against Gestalt realism and he's proposing a kind of idealism it's an interesting kind of idealism because it's like Kant how many have had the Kant course? okay, but remember when Kant says he's an empirical realist and a transcendental idealist Merleau-Ponty is sort of like that so we have to draw a little bit different distinctions and boundaries but Kant says he knows that the that the public world is public and shared (coughs) and so forth Uh, it's just that it's only an appearance It's, it's he calls it appearances he calls it phenomena because it has got the kind of complete objective character that people think it has. If, they, if it did, it would lead to terrible antinomies, which I won't go into. So you have to believe that the world is never completed, never completely determined. But nonetheless, in Kant language, objective. In Merleau-Ponty language, we have to say public, shared, stable, and so forth, or sta- sta- relatively stable. Uh, so, so, in so far, so, what kind of idealist is he then? Well, he's already a kind of idealist when he says that this is a world of appearances, a phenomenal world, a world that wouldn't have the character if it ha- if it did have, except for us. If we disappeared, there wouldn't be the indeterminacy changing to determinateness, and there wouldn't be the sort of objects out there with determinate properties. Uh, which we
3: retroactively
0: read into our experience that's pretty idealistic But what's, and I don't object to that I'm just telling you where I stand That he's made a good case for that that this is a world the perceptual world is a world of, for appearance it's a phenomenal world and, and he set you up for this way back on page 6 when he said that we compose the world uh, I don't see the quote anymore but I quoted it way back when we started Oh, yeah. he, he did say that anyway. We compose the world, so now he's now he's sort of pulled. You know, he's cashed in on that, and that's okay. But well, what's wrong? But well, what's really wrong is he thinks that he's got something to say about physics and the universe. Mm-hmm. It isn't obvious at all that just because the perceptual world depends on us, that electrons depend on us. For all we know, and I believe, there are electrons out there and they have a spin and they have a charge and they have a mass and that's all very determinate. Maybe electrons are a little fuzzy, if so, take, take something else more determinate. Galaxies are pretty determinate, uh, very determinate, and have a causal history and so forth. It's just wrong to think that because we could only get to the physical world by starting with the perceptual world, and then doing lots of interesting things to it, that the physical world in any way depends on the perceptual world. But but that is is what he thinks. Uh, He says, for instance, on 11, I just collected the quotes, because Jennifer and I were discussing this, uh, and this is just bad, about 10 lines from the bottom. The scientist, too, must learn to criticize the idea of an external world in itself. I don't think the scientist needs to learn that at all. I think Merleau-Ponty needs to learn that the access that he's been describing what I would call access practices. I mean, There's lots that without the perceptual world, we'd never get access to the external world as it is in itself. But that doesn't prove that there isn't any external world. It just tells how we get access to it. At least that's a possible view. You don't have to believe this realistic view. You just have to see that it at least, I think, makes sense. To see that Merleau-Ponty hasn't the right to go from his phenomenalism with res- or uh, let's call it uh, idealism, okay, with respect to the perceptual world, to go to idealism with respect to the universe—it's just a non sequitur. Yeah.
2: Well, there's a sen- there's a way of understanding that sentence. A scientists too must learn to criticize the idea of an external world in right. itself. Um,
0: Why? What's wrong with that?
2: Well. What makes all of this murky when you talk about it, just because I I hear a lot of Heideggerian influences in this, and I just wanted to call attention to the fact that there's an intermediate position between uh, merleau ponty and I guess the traditional realist view, and I think that's the place where Heidegger occupies. And so, because I don't think you actually believe what you just said about the science, I
0: believe exactly what I said. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I, that's I one I, of my greatest I don't. <laughs> <laughs> Well, this is an interesting <laughs> case of, of
2: the first-person uh, deficiency, but I think the, the case of external world isn't something that you would agree. Well, I, I'll phrase it as a I question. see what you Do mean. Do you believe that there is an external world, and it's an intelligible question to pose, is there an external world? Do you think that's an intelligible well,
0: question? Well, uh, let's not go into Kantianism. If in, no, if, I, mean, I mean, into that. I mean, if external world means that there is an internal world, Corresponding to it, of course, I don't believe it. No Heideggerian <laughs> does, but the way it's put here, I mean, it's sort of innocent. The external world oh, part, I think, I think. you don't think it's innocent. Well, I'll find you other ones then. I mean, but yeah,
3: there's another reading of, of that sentence. Okay, let's find 10.
0: that. Okay, let's go to page 10 mm-hmm. 10 in yours, 11 in mine. Okay,
3: which is just that there is talking about a particular kind of scientist, namely a scientist who has studied perception, mm-hmm. and that scientist. Who study perception, not electrons, needs to take the lessons of phenomenology. And
0: okay, in that case, you're right. It could be read that way. Then let's read it that way. But then they, he's still an idealist about science. We'll find another quote. That's I grant I you. But it
2: applies to electrons too. But I mean, but that is the important point. Yeah, it's
0: ambiguous the way. But there, And he certainly correctly means that you don't. That he wants you not to think that you could do. Uh, the science of the mind using causes and reasons he's not a cognitivist and he's not a behaviorist and if those are the scientists they've got it wrong that they have to bring indeterminacy into it and so forth but he is getting out of this a conclusion that the universe somehow depends on us and I'll find you where he does it Uh, well at the bottom of 28 he talks about interesting way to put it uh, which I think is very revealing he says we have to discover the natural world too and its mode of existence which is not to be confused with the scientific object (laughs) now I take that to be a way of saying we have to discover the shared perceptual world (laughs) with its trees and animals and everything in it but we and we want that we, we're not going to deny it. It's a phenomenal world. It's a world of appearances, but it's a natural world, too. Nature shows up in the world of appearances. Kant agrees with that. And, but, and we want to keep that, when, but we don't want to confuse it with a scientific object. Because if we did, we'd be realists about science. And we don't want to keep that. That's how I read that. Let's go on. The phenomena of the backgrounds continuing under the figure and seeing under the figure what in fact no, that's not going to help me. Let's just stop with that. Uh, yes, time is up. Anyway, but that's exactly how much I wanted to say. And I don't want, it, if I could help it, to go back into the realism, idealism issue, but it had to be brought up once. Okay. Somebody come up and tell me how, if they'll give me the last Tuesday.